Hello and welcome to a special episode of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Inclusive leadership practices can yield massive returns for teams and organizations, but how do leaders implement a sustainable model for inclusion at all levels? To explain why sometimes the barriers to inclusion are as diverse as the solutions are, this week I'm delighted to be joined by Sheila Walsh. Sheila specializes in inclusion, strategic leadership and organizational development and has experience coaching senior leaders and middle managers across a multitude of sectors within Ireland and internationally. Sheila, I thought there'd be no better person to speak to about this idea of inclusive leadership. Recently at our national management conference at the IMI, one of the key topics that we talked about was this idea of return on inclusion. Mm. Uh, so I want to start off by asking you just about return on inclusion for leaders and how does an inclusive culture positively impact a business? Mm, really? So it's usually one of the first questions that people ask if we're talking about it, because they're like, what's the return on investment here? So there's both kind of practical case studies and then lots of kind of um, academic research in the background that, that speaks to this. So a, a couple of things. So one is you have a better representation of the general public. If you're inclusive, then it means that you retain your diverse talent. Um, and it also means that you utilize their perspectives and points of view. So you end up having a better representation of the general public, which informs how you do business and how you sell to your customer um, or provide a service to your customer, depending on what you're doing. It also, when done correctly, it will avoid groupthink. So it will allow people to come together, brainstorm ideas without, um, you know, that, that terrible thing where we, where we lose great ideas in meetings because somebody dominates the meeting and then actually we've lost an opportunity. It also supports like psychological safety. Um, so that's the environment where both individuals can be valued for who they are individually, but also for anything that they bring that might be different to the equation. And then there's other things like, there's evidence that if you're inclusive and you have a gender diverse board, it can have a direct impact on profit directly. Um, and there was some research that suggested you only need um, one woman and using inclusion on, on a board for it to have that impact. And then there's other studies that suggest innovation, creativity, employee commitment, recipro reciprocal relationships where leaders can lean on their teams um, and their teams show up in that way for them. So, so a kind of more sustainable um, relationship between leadership and uh, I suppose uh, employees or followers. So they're kind of the, the main ones, but there's also been tracking of it actually, like I said, profit, but making a difference to turnover of employees and the retention of employees and, and holding people. And um, it also has a direct impact on the brand. So when an organization is known to be inclusive, it, that gets around in the industry and that can have a real um, positive impact on the brand as well. So it, the, the positive impacts of inclusion go way beyond kind of just one area of the business. Absolutely. I mean, it, it extends to everything. And uh, just picking up on what you were saying there regarding uh, turnover of employees, uh, one interesting stat that came out from Microsoft, I think, in a study from last year is that uh, up to 40% of people are currently considering leaving their jobs by the end of the year. And that compares to, I think, something like 11% in a normal year, uh, looking at employee turnover rates. So that's just one of the strands that I suppose inclusion can kind of get into. Um, but I suppose Sheila, I'm interested as well to ask you about um, why inclusion is maybe sometimes difficult to achieve and what would you say organizations and leaders would cite as the main reasons why it can't necessarily maybe be implemented so easily? Mm. Well, I think first we have to take a meta view, which is 
that often inclusion and um, diversity and inclusion work is given to a DNI team, um, whereas that that then becomes their sole job. And the issue with that is that leadership may not pick up responsibility, and HR or OD might also um, negate responsibility for it. Inclusion has to happen at every level, from you know induction right through to performance reviews, KPIs. And every level has a responsibility to be inclusive. So that's a big undertaking for an organization. And I think one of the most common kind of challenges that come up is that we assign it to a department of some sort or a person, and we expect them to to make us inclusive as an organization, whereas actually we need to have a shared responsibility for inclusion. So that's one kind of organizational level that we need to consider. Who are we deeming responsible? Whose workload is responsible for delivering this? whose KPIs are connected to this, because what can often happen is you, you get your DNI expert and you have that them, their KPIs connected to it, but nobody else's are. And then they're they're left with this challenge where people are saying, well, I'm delivering on my KPIs, that's yours. So we need to think about that. There's also um, the challenge with power and privilege. So often people in positions of power within organizations um, may often have privilege that they're unaware of, like all of us do, Dave. So we all have privileges that we don't know about, but we can talk about someone else's privileges because it's easier to see when someone has something we don't than to see when we have something that others don't. And so we we already know that the majority of uh, directors in Ireland are um, white men, and, and, and that's that's like the overriding statistic. And so and not that white men aren't inclusive, but what we have to think about is what their experience is only one kind of experience. And even with intersectionality, that's a limited view, you know, and that's that's limited people in power who are making decisions. And so that can become really challenging when you're trying to say to someone who has a successful business or is running a business really well, actually, you need more diversity and you, you need to be more inclusive. You're not being inclusive. Um, and a story that I heard recently that that reflects that really well is, at, um, I actually, I've heard it from a couple of organizations, Irish organizations where often sports is used as a way of bonding at the beginning of the meeting. And what, the, what these boards didn't understand was that they were naturally excluding anyone who didn't come from that particular sports background. And it meant that people started to like learn about sports just to be included. They started to dread the first 10 minutes. And I've heard this from three organizations in the last six months. So like it's, it's something that's quite common to Irish culture. Um, to to speak about sports so that became a big barrier because people were like well I don't I can't bond personally with these people so it became another barrier to influencing or discussing inclusion then there's unconscious bias which is the human process we we all have that Um, and then there's kind of the the kind of general metrics that can be an issue in organizations where we might be measuring diversity metrics but we might not be measuring inclusion And so we may see that there's a higher turnover of people from diverse backgrounds or marginalized backgrounds, but we're not necessarily looking at why we're not holding people from marginalized backgrounds or why they're not accessing the organization. How, why aren't they getting into the talent pool in the first place? Um, And then, and then you have like this idea that inclusive leadership is just about being nice. And this idea that inclusion is just about not being actively uh, discriminatory. Whereas inclusion is about being actively inclusive. And so that kind of misconception gets in, a w- in the way of a lot of these conversations. And then there's the ultimate bias that we all have, which is we 
naturally think our worldview is right and our values and beliefs are right. And when somebody contradicts that, we can often have like cognitive dissonance. It can create a reaction in us where we have to reject the other. And so with all of these kind of organizational challenges and individual challenges and work group challenges, it requires a lot of self-awareness and it requires a lot of intentional education and practices to engage kind of inclusion across organizations. And so the barriers are as diverse as the solutions are, I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. Really, really uh, excellent uh, breakdown. And I suppose coming from that, I'm kind of, as we look forward now and kind of, I suppose leaders are contemplating how their teams are going to look um, in a hybrid sense. Um, I think one of the things that continues to come up is how do leaders create an inclusive culture when teams are operating maybe asynchronously, um, maybe certain members of the team come in some days and some others Mm -hmm. don't, for example. So what do you think would be kind of some practical steps that leaders could take uh, with that kind of self-awareness piece that you mentioned um, Mm. to kind of promote that inclusive culture in in a hybrid context? Yes, so I think um, in a way, we have to appreciate that inclusion doesn't happen when we're in the room together all the time. So we can be in a room and we've heard people say, you know, I felt alone, I didn't belong. So being in the room doesn't necessarily provide a better opportunity for inclusion. So I think that's the the really important starting point. Inclusion is the experience and feeling that I'm valued as an individual for what I bring. And I still belong here, even with my differences. And that both are okay. It's okay for me to express my differences and it's okay, um, and I still belong, you know, I, I still matter here, even though I might, I might be different in some way. And remember, like, we're not just talking about marginalized groups when we talk about inclusion within kind of work group settings, we're talking about everybody because we all are individuals and we have differences to our colleagues and our friends and our peers. And so anyone could experience this, but marginalized groups are challenged with it more um, because of the unconscious bias that's associated. Um, with inclusion so I suppose there's a couple of things so first is knowledge so you need to know a little bit about inclusion as a topic and you also need to know a little bit about your own bias and your own unconscious bias and you you need to educate yourself on that Um, and and that's the starting point because without that knowledge there's no process of integration right so the next part then is kind of practicing inclusion Um, and this is especially important online Um, I spoke to someone recently about being at a meeting and they couldn't speak at the meeting. They left the meeting and they became really emotional after the meeting because they couldn't speak, not because anybody in the group had done anything, but because they became overwhelmed by something that happened in the room and nobody noticed. So one of the first things you can do, especially if it's an online meeting or you have that hybrid of some people on Zoom, some people in the room, make sure that you're watching and noticing who's contributing who's comfortable contributing, who isn't comfortable contributing, and think about how you can support their contribution. Sometimes it's gonna be appropriate to support them in the room at the time. So they might be on Zoom or they may be in the room. And then other times it's gonna be appropriate to follow up afterwards and say, you know what, I'd really like your opinion on this. Could you add it so I can contemplate it? So that's one point is noticing who's contributing. Um, The other thing that you can do is watch out for who within your organization you go and have side chats with. Who are you grabbing a coffee with? Who are you ringing to to talk about something? And take stock of how diverse are the people I'm speaking to? My inner circle at work, those peers that I kind of lean into, are they as diverse as they need to be for me to be aware 
of inclusion on a kind of practical level. So if I'm constantly surrounded by yes people or people who agree with me or people who have the exact same experience, you're not going to have the awareness of inclusion, even with the knowledge, because you're not experiencing it. You're not relating to somebody and um, who's pointing it out to you. Then there's the engaging multiple opinions. So one of the things that we have to be careful of, regardless of whether, like I said, we're all online, we're all in the room or we're half and half, is that we're still bringing multiple perspectives into the room. And so if, if I have a meeting and 10 people are all agreeing, I might not shut that conversation down until I hear one disagreement, because I need to hear the opposing view in the room to make sure I'm including it in our critical thinking about the solution, rather than just saying, oh, great, we can jump to, we can jump to an agreement, great, we'll move forward with consensus. If consensus is there too easy, we need to be more curious about where the unsaid thing is in the room. Who isn't putting forward something that will help us to um, come up with a more robust answer or think more critically about the situation? And then the other thing that is really hard is listening to others' perspectives without butting in, putting your aim, your goal, your objective, your position. Listen and notice when you become triggered and ask yourself at that point, what can I do with this? Does this expand my own vision? Does it show my unconscious bias? Does it show that I'm driving towards a certain outcome so I'm not really including people in the room? And we've all been in those meetings. So it's really important to reflect on that um, and to try and actively engage in active listening. So there's kind of the knowledge, there's the practice, and then the third piece is the active reflection where you are you are curious about where you may be limiting your team. So when we have, um, I'll say like a hero leadership approach, when we have the idea that the leader has the answers, that means that the level of the group's competency is the level of the leader's competency. And so that means that every leader is limiting their team to the level of their competency. Whereas ideally what you want is for your team to expand the competency so you have a group competency that is bigger than any one individual. And so that, re that requires the ability to reflect and to repair when you've limited a conversation or when you've added unconscious bias or when you've stereotyped someone. And so there's kind of those three levels. So we've got knowledge, practice, reflection and repair. And Sheila, one of the areas that you specialize in is change management. And obviously over the past year and a half, 18 to 19 months, we've uh, seen leaders manage their fair share of change. Do you feel that leaders are now in a better position, that they're better equipped to deal with change and that there is this kind of maybe shell of resilience that's built up or is that not the case? So I'd like to say it is the case, but from working with leaders on the ground, um, what I'm what I'm noticing is that leaders are tired. They also went through the pandemic um, and are going through it. They've also been, you know, a support to teams or to other people. You know, people say, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, that's not resilience. That's not accurate. And um, we know like lots of research into resilience now, but we know that it's not the incident that matters. It's how well you managed it or coped with it. Um, and so surviving change is not the same as thriving in change. And so I, I just want to kind of like clarify that piece first. One of the things that I'm seeing as people return to the office is that one of the things that are happening is people feel and leaders feel that they've given an awful lot over the pandemic to keep business going, to, to meet their deadlines, to meet their KPIs. And that when an organization isn't honoring that or reflecting that in like flexible working or in terms of acknowledging it in some way, 
that is impacting their resilience further because they're feeling like I gave all this. I now have to go back into another change cycle, which is entering back into the workforce. I have to support all these people who are also being challenged, who are also worn out from everything. Um, and there's no acknowledgement of it. So one of the elements that's important for resilience is, is being able to kind of acknowledge what is and its impact. Whereas when we just flip back to returning to the office and we're not acknowledging the impact of everything that's occurred, it's not helping build resilience. It's often kind of dismissing the reality for people, which doesn't help them to feel stronger or ready for the next part of the change process. And so I, I think that that's happening quite a bit. I break resilience down into the three hours, rest, re recovering, and refocus. So whenever there's an incident, we need some level of rest to process it. We need to be able to recover from the challenge, and then we need to be able to refocus. But if you interrupt the rest and the recovering, it can be really hard to refocus. And so we need to think about that in terms of ourselves and also when leaders are leading other people. Have you supported them to have their rest, to have their recovery, and then to refocus? Or are you trying to skip to the refocusing? Um, it's a little bit like the performance conversations we have sometimes where people talk about performance and they totally ignore the fact that rest is part of performance. So, so we need to kind of acknowledge, are we supporting leaders and their teams to recover and then refocus? And also, if you just think about it, I think some people have emerged with more resilience because their home life supported them or the lack of commuting meant that they did more self-care Maybe they reevaluated their life choices. Maybe they hired a coach. So some people have been able to access the advantage of the change and have been able to get on board and process it. Others haven't had that. Others have had different experiences working from home or different experiences within their organization, may have faced a redundancy and then gone back into work. So all of this uncertainty impacts people's resilience and sense of security. So it's important to, to acknowledge that it's going to be different for everyone but I haven't seen an overwhelming, you know, flood of leaders with serious amounts of resilience that, you know, I've seen them use their resilience. Are they resilient now as they go into the next phase of change? I'm not sure if they're as resilient now as they were in the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And you mentioned the next phase of change. And I think that's a really interesting way of phrasing the kind of period that we're going into now. Um, often we've heard during the pandemic this idea that, you know, this kind of acceleration of trends, like things have skipped for 10 years and we're kind of in a completely different cycle now. And one of the interesting things is to look at is um, which organizations are the ones that will be kind of more risk taking and approaching a mind with approaching things with a mindset of, you know, kind of taking a chance or something like that. And that's often anathema to many leaders because, you know, we're kind of used to this, you know, status quo. This is the way business works. So I'm interested to ask you, Sheila, just how can leaders develop a mindset that maybe is more open to risk considering this, I suppose, environment of change that we're in? So I suppose we have to bring risk back to what it does to a person. So when we take a risk, it directly impacts our sense of safety. And depending on how secure our relationship with ourselves and our own worth is, we're going to relate to risk differently. And so the very first thing that that I, I do with anyone I work with, any of the leaders I work with, is talk to them about creating their secure base in their own identity, in their relationship to self, so that they can risk failure, so that they can measure risk with less anxiety, because they're able to know that their worth and their well-being doesn't have to be related to the outcome of the risk that they're taking. 
The other thing that I think is really important, and I seem to see that it it reduces the more senior leaders become, the, the smaller their circles can become, both in the workplace because they are over more people rather than peers, but also in their home life because they've often given more to work to, to become more senior. And so one of the things that's really important is that they have relationships with themselves and with others like home friends peers and what I will say is for any of the leaders that are listening one of the things that can be really hard is to turn to your other senior leaders as peers because you may have opposing positions in the organization or agendas that may contradict each other but it's still really important to go out and find peers at a similar level to relate to because that type of security that relational security that kind of uh, yeah healthy attachment will allow a leader to make um, better decisions in terms of risk. They'll be able to assess it better. And the other thing that they need to do is practice a growth mindset, which if you've ever even like sniffed near a coach, you you hear that all the time, growth mindset. Um, And then the other thing is I think critical, um, critical skills around risk assessment. So being able to define what the real risk is rather than just getting caught up in the anxiety or fear of the consequences of the risk, being being able to assess whether it's a valuable risk to take. Can you stand over it if it fails? Can you back it? Can your reputation manage it? Starting to think about risk in terms of that assessment will make it much easier to know whether it's a good decision or not, rather than, oh, I'm comfortable taking risk or I'm not. So more entrepreneurial leaders or leaders who are in entrepreneurial spaces will will often you know fail fast is the ethos but in more traditional hierarchical models of of leadership and organizational structures risk is less it's more operationally minded and so it will really depend your own relationship with risk and your organization's relationship with risk about how to approach it best exactly um, and i suppose Sheila, just to finish up uh, just kind of a, I suppose, a framing piece. If you were to be speaking to leaders, I'm sure you speak to leaders all the time. But um, if you're in your conversations with them, what are you kind of saying in terms of, you know, if they are asking you, what are the key kind of capabilities or the key things I need to focus on um, as we enter this kind of more complex and ever-changing business landscape? So, if anything has ever been taught to us, it's the adaptive skills. But I think the first thing is they involve. AI, they involve tech, they involve crisis management. Um, The amount of senior leaders who spent the first 12 weeks of of working from home not knowing how to use Zoom tells us that while people skills are what's needed and and prioritised for senior leaders and and needs to be, um, there's also some technical skills that need to be developed as well. And that's not going to stop. Tech is not slowing down. It's going to be part like it's going to be inbred more and more into the fabric of organizations. So I'd break it down to three things: people and performance, and this includes emotional intelligence, inclusion, coaching. Those three things are vital in terms of people and performance. Um, strategy and influence. So the ability to be strategic, not just tactical, the ability to bring strategy down to everyday operations. That's a skill that's really hard for people to um gather because often you get to middle management because you're really operationally strong you then get told you need to be more strategic but it's not organizations don't always have those links clearly made and they're not always being taught very clearly so I think the ability to integrate strategy and be influential in your organization and your industry a lot of um, leaders just stay within their organization but they don't realize that actually if you can 
influence within your industry that's going to have a massive impact on your career as well and your skill within the organization and then that third one is those adaptive skills and that involves ai tech crisis management the ability to change when that's the best decision rather than to continue down the route because it's most comfortable and that ties back to your previous question dave around risk like that's all tied in there to those adaptive skills so i think those three things are vital Fantastic. Uh, Sheila, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No problem.